37 past one, time for Plain Politics Partnership, Star Tribune Editorial Board, and CCO Radio. Because we have a uh, Twins game today, everything's just a little bit restricted, a little bit shorter than normal. So good long segment today, as opposed to normally the two segments, with uh, Pat Lopez and John Rash from the Star Tribune. Hello to both of you. Let's start locally. Let's start the gubernatorial race. John, I'm going to start with you. Michael Broadcorp with this uh, tweet just moments ago, and I think it's intriguing on the money. So let's go back to May of uh, 2018. This is without an incumbent. Let's emphasize that. Tim Walls had a cash-on-hand advantage uh, against Jeff Johnson, the Republican nominee, of 500000 Okay, As of just a couple weeks ago, Tim Walls, now the incumbent, has a cash advantage on hand over Scott Jensen, the endorsed candidate who is going to be the nominee, of $3.8 million. That's big. How significant is it, and why do you think the disparity is as large as it is? It is big. The disparity is due to incumbency, as well as Democrats being able to even up the funding race in general nationally for many races. And yet, I don't think it's going to be a or the decisive factor, because I think that both of them have so much of an ability to get their message out in so many different ways. Most Minnesotans are completely familiar with Governor Walls and increasingly familiar with Representative Jensen, and that their ability to talk directly to their voters, especially via social media, is a game changer that has influenced a whole lot of elections. There's the meta narrative of what's going on with the Republican party and president Trump and, you know, the COVID controversy that Dr. Jensen found himself in. So I think that while it will, you know, be an advantage for governor walls, he'd rather be in his economic position as opposed to his opponents. I don't necessarily think that's what will determine the race. Pat, let me pick up on those points and get you to expand, including social media. You're seeing on Twitter and on Facebook a lot of Scott Jensen, a lot on his lieutenant governor nominee, Matt Burke. Um, Mm. When you have that type of money advantage that Walls has at this particular time, he is is clearly the more known candidate. They are, and you can Mm -hmm. determine if it's fair or not, going to try to typify Scott Jensen in an unfavorable light. How important well, is that going to be? And how does, how does Jensen try to overcome that? Uh, you know, they're, they're going to attack each other. Um, that's what opponents do. So um, that's a, that's a given in every race. I think, uh, you know, walls is uh, quite logically going to go after um, Jensen on his anti-vaccine um, positions on some of the extremist positions um, that they're going to attribute to him. Um, Scott Jensen is going to come after Walls as, um, you know, they've got a couple of well-worn themes already that, you know, Walls is determined to, you know, take power wherever he can and, you know, go back to the emergency powers. Um, They're going to try to hang every um, ill uh, going on right now from crime, which is, you know, more of a local issue. Um, to inflation, which is a national issue, um, they'll they'll all use anything and everything they can, including Matt Burke apparently continually tweeting 
that um, uh, the governor owns a, a cabin in South Dakota. <laughs> I don't understand that, but it is one of those um, instances of social media where, um, you know, this has become a recognized tactic that Trump uses where it hardly matters whether it's true or not. It just gives you something to um, attack the other side with. And in this case, it's not true. And uh, No, no, it's not you know, true. Matt, no, no one has found Matt any evidence is an everyday. Yeah, Matt is an everyday citizen, would troll and have fun. There's just a different bar when you know it's factually not correct. And well, he's not an everyday citizen. He is a lieutenant no, governor that, candidate. For no, the that's Republican what I was saying, Party. Pat, before, so Pat, Pat no I was saying longer, that before you jumped yeah. in. Yeah, I was saying yeah. that, that. That's one thing before, but now when he's a right. lieutenant governor nominee, the bar is higher. It just flat out is. Yeah. So let me well, ask you this, Pat, and then be. you jump in, John. When... Matt Burke and Scott Jensen say, are you better off now than you were four years ago? That's been the bar so many times in so many different races. Most people aren't. I mean, in Minnesota, and we can have this debate on, you know, COVID beyond control or what Tim Walls did, inflation, what he didn't do. How powerful do you think that will be, Pat, as as one of their calling cards that they're starting to use and I'm assuming it's going to be a large part of what, what they're going to try for the next uh, few months. Well, um, you know, we have divided uh, uh, control in this state. So, um, you know, both sides come in for a share of the of the credit for what goes well and the blame for what goes bad. Um, they can try to hang that on him. You know, let's face it, almost no one is better off than they were four years ago. We've been through nearly three years of a brutal pandemic, and now comes inflation and, uh, you know, possibly a recession coming. Who all is to blame for that? You know, there's plenty of blame to go around, and some of it are forces beyond anyone's control, and hopefully we'll all be grown up enough to accept that and and look for something a little less simplistic than are you better off than you were four years ago? Because, you know, the, John, the important thing is what I'll are you going to do four years going forward? Yep. John, how much will it be of that? I think Pat makes a good point. How much is it the balance of, yes, look at he had his chance, didn't work, versus concentrating on what we're going to do, the balance of the Jensen campaign on that, and just on the crime part, because clearly there are issues in major cities across the country, not just Minnesota, but we're all aware of what's happened in Minneapolis and St. Paul over the last couple of years. Clearly, I think most voters didn't make their decisions on recency, what is happening in the here and now and how they perceive it changing their lives and whether it's getting better or worse. And most Minnesotans, Americans and people across the world, because inflation is now a global scourge, look at the rising prices, particularly of gasoline, and they're not happy about it. And they're going to lay it, if not at the feet of Governor Walls with President Biden, even though there are factors that are much more international, in particular, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You're also going to have continual inflation, especially in food. And while it won't be a food crisis as it is globally, where people literally have the life and death challenge of acquiring food as they will in a lot of developing nations, food will get more expensive here, and that will frustrate people. What I think they will look at the governor at for more in terms of what he has been able to control or not control in this case is 
crime, particularly in the urban areas. And I think that that's something that they're going to lay at his feet more. And that, you know, while it is increasing nationally, the local conditions here are something that elected leaders generally are supposed to be able to keep a lid on. And that hasn't happened. So, you know, that's why I think in this recent poll it was reported that the Jensen Burke ticket was about two percentage points or so. Yeah behind, you know, Wallace and Flanagan ticket. And so we're really going to have a barn burner here in Minnesota. Let's uh, let's go to the federal level. We've had uh, two days of the January 6th hearing, one in prime time, another on Monday. We've had one day postponed regarding logistics. John, what has been the most powerful portion of what the committee has offered up and what is your number one question which still needs to be answered off this committee's work. The most powerful portion is that almost all of the witness testimony against President Trump and what he has done has been from Republicans, people in his administration, cabinet members, campaign managers, others who are very specific about what happened behind the scenes and confirming some of the worst, you know, that has happened. I think that the biggest question is what the Justice Department is going to do with all of this data, testimony, and evidence in terms of will they bring any criminal charges against the former president or anyone within his inner circle with all this that's available. And there even seems to be a split on the panel in terms of what the chairman, Benny Thompson, has said and what the vice chairman of the panel Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming has said. So that's the big question that I think will emerge towards the end of all these hearings. Same thing for you, Pat. Well, um, I don't don't think anybody really knows what the Justice Department is going to do. Um, I do think that the hearings are worthy in and of themselves, um, simply because it is unearthing a ton of information that otherwise would never have seen the light of day. Uh, apparently tomorrow there's supposed to be a judge testifying um, as to how he helped uh, Pence resist pressure from Trump um, to do to commit, you know, basically illegal unconstitutional acts um, that would have stopped the election. These are incredibly important steps for our democracy to take. And so I hope instead of getting too hung up on, you know, whether or not the Justice Department is going to do this or that, you know, we take in all this information and um, and figure out what it means for our democracy going forward and for ways that we can improve it and safeguard it and, um, you know, build even more uh, protections into it. Are you optimistic about that, Pat? Um, yes, I, I am. I mean, I, I tend to be um, more optimistic. I, I do think that... Um, you know, ultimately, it can take a long time, but look at things like, um, you know, the gun deal in the Senate. It's not perfect, but it's it's inching forward. And, you know, democracy is never finished. It's always, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Um, we're not we're in a very imperfect state right now. And um, and it's our obligation to try to make that a little bit better going forward. Last thing for you, John, on this bipartisan bill. Uh, in light of Uvalde, in light of all the mass shootings on some changes for 21-year-olds and, and 
gun ownership, a lot of money for mental health, some changes for funding for red flag laws. How significant is that in your view? The actual changes are more incremental. The fact that there was a bipartisan breakthrough might be more significant because it suggests that members of the U.S. Senate can work together on something that is absolutely crucial and that there may be more reformation in the years and sessions ahead. Thank you to both of you. Excellent stuff. We'll uh, talk again soon. Thank you. John Rash and Patricia Lopez from the Star Tribune. You want to see a great play, and you want to see it without spending a lot of money? I'm going to tell you about that in moments here on CCO. 